Oh, hello there. Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. It's officially holiday season, and what better way to celebrate than by kicking up our feet, grabbing some hot cocoa, and diving into our favorite feel-good holiday classics. We'll be discussing heartwarming topics such as does the subsidization of Santa's workshop actually hurt competition? Why is it so hard for Hermie the Elf to become a licensed dentist? And why are we diverting NORAD resources to track a sleigh that flies 3,000 times faster than the speed of sound? To answer these questions and more, we're joined by Libertarianism.org's Paul Matsko. Thanks for having me, guys. And Paul Meany. Thanks for having me. We'll kick things off with a classic, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. So the Pauls, you tell me, is it actually a wonderful life? Hmm. Well, it's actually always wonderful if you're Mr. Potter. I mean, he seems like a perfectly happy individual come Christmas time. So why don't why don't we take a step back? Who is Mr. Potter in in our in our film? Maybe we should do a quick rundown. Okay, so um, Mr. Potter is the big bad guy in the show, right? He's the banker. Um, this is. In 1947, it's released. So the Great Depression is still in memory. And, and the big banks didn't, you know, come out of the Great Depression looking all that great with their, with their users. So they're the bad guys. Mr. Potter's the bad guy. He wants to own everything in town. Um, and he wants to squeeze out the little man, the working man. You know, they, they shouldn't get credit. They shouldn't be allowed to own houses. They should rent from him in his, um, slums. Um, and the good guy, George Bailey, uh, he and his uncle, formerly his father, uh, owned a, well, no, his uncle wasn't formerly his father. <laughs> <laughs> he used to do what his father does, yes. Yeah. But the Baileys owned the Bailey, save, Bailey Brothers Savings and Loan, and they look out for the little guy. They lend to Bert and Ernie, the cop and the taxi cab driver. Um, not, not the Muppets. They, they might lend, hey, there's a, there's a tie over to our Muppets we'll Christmas that. Carol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they look out for the little guy. They lend to to workers so they can own their own homes and be part of the American dream. Uh, Potter doesn't like this. So the big – in the background of the story, it's this struggle between Potter and Bailey for the kind of control of the financial soul of the town. That's the first three quarters of the film. And in the last quarter, George Bailey gets beaten down by Potter's attacks, by small town life, by the – crushing of his hopes and dreams, which we'll talk about more later. Uh, and the final fourth is he is, uh, and spoiler alert for those of our listeners who haven't seen It's Wonderful Life, he contemplates committing suicide, but an angel intervenes and shows him life if he had never been born. And he realizes how full his life actually is and how much good he's done for the town. And uh, everyone sings Auld Lang Syne at the end and... It's a happy ending. Also, I'm just going to put in a side note. If you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life by this point, you should probably turn the show off and watch it. <laughs> uh, it's been out for a while. Um, just kind of uh, piggybacking off what Paul said. So George Bailey is the main character. We get his entire life story. He wants to go and travel. He he is essentially the embodiment of the American dream. He, want, he has lots of dreams. He doesn't want to stay stuck in this small town. He, like... One of the first scenes in the beginning is he gets this giant suitcase and he like is talking about all the stickers he wants to put on it. And then um, his father passes away and he learns that he's going to have to take over the family business. And instead, he allows everyone else to go after their dreams. Um, so his brother doesn't have to stay home to uh, take care of the business. He ends, His brother actually ends up going off to war. Um, but it's it's kind of a story about either... Mixed reviews. It's either a story about someone uh, being selfless and allowing everyone else to travel to go after their dreams to travel, etc. Or it's a story about just giving up on your dreams. So I was shocked when I was reading some I've, I've seen this movie plenty of times, but I was just curious. I was reading some critics um, that from a, ver a variety of time periods. So I read a critique from 1980. I read one from 2003 and all of them were very pessimistic about the video they are about the movie they didn't necessarily think it was all that positive because we watch it as like a feel-good movie but if you really get down to like the nitty-gritty or like how they treat women or and that that kind of stuff it's not actually all that feel good um though like it ends up okay for george so 
The whole movie is just his life being like not ruined by any chance, but he starts the movie off, loses his hearing, doesn't get to go to college, misses his honeymoon. Like every time something good is going for him in his life, something goes wrong and he takes responsibility and helps people out. So, Well, the problem is we are Sam Wainwrights. All of us here in this room. So his perspective and the moral of the story, which is for supposed to be for people like him, falls flat on on us to some extent. So but what I mean by that is Sam Wainwright in the film is a, a, a bit character. He's a like a friend of George's who le- he does all the things George wishes he would have done. He goes off, um, kind of sees the world. Um, uh, he's a big city guy. He gets rich in plastics. Um it just a couple of times it cracks me up at the time. They're like, I told George could have gotten in on the ground floor plastics. <laughs> um, but in a sense, today he would be like a tech, a tech person, a tech entrepreneur or someone who goes to the big city where he gets a law degree and is a high powered attorney or a right. So Sam Wainwright is the cosmopolitan that gets out of the small town, has a high flying, well off, seemingly very happy life. Um, George Bailey is the one who stays in his small town. I kind of imagine this is like small town Ohio. I have no reason to believe that Bedford Falls is in Ohio, but that's like my mental mental image. But he stays at home. He's the good son, doesn't go off and get an educate, advanced education. He doesn't you know, get to travel the world and become a National Geographic explorer like he imagines as a kid. Um, he doesn't make a million dollars by the time he's 30. So all of that... Like those of us here in this room made the opposite choice. We left Texas or South Carolina or Ireland or, or, or right like and moved to the city. We are Sam Wainwright, so it kind of makes sense that it feels a little bit off. That something about his life choices wouldn't resonate with us. Um, so I don't know. Do you feel like a Sam Wainwright? I at times I certainly do. It when you brought up the question of like he represents this American dream to me, it, it raises the question like at what point does he represent the American dream, and what does that when you identify as like oh that's that's what it is. What does that say about what you think the American dream is? Is it you know sacrificing yourself for others and building a community uh and in that case i think he sort of ends up with the american dream and throughout through all that struggle or is it that he um you know tries to pull himself up by his bootstraps and be self-sufficient throughout a struggle which is very much like this myth of the the, the self-made man and and myth not in the fake sense but in the sort of like larger like story we tell ourselves as a as a, as our nation or is it the the idea that he's like someone who wants to go out and see the world and be this sort of like a, i mean he's not a cowboy straight going out west but he he has that kind of rugged individualism um and i think where you identify what you see as the American dream really comes through in sort of what you pick up as uh, where was the point in his story that you see him, you know, lose what his goal was. So I, I thought that was really interesting for you to bring up there. Yeah, I I was going to even have a follow up question about what do you think? What do we individually think that this movie is saying about the American dream? Because to me, like when I think American dream, I think immigrant. I think that they're they're coming over with nothing. They're like Landry just said, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, that those that kind of sentiment. But that's not what I see in George Bailey. Like he they have a small family business or a closely family run business. Um, he's not necessarily left with nothing and and in the event that he is it's due to an error error from someone in someone's uh family his uncle I'm blanking on his first his uncle's first name but it's yeah uncle billy like accidentally gives the money to mr potter in oh, his newspaper we all have an uncle billy don't we <laughs> um so then i guess like in theory uh george bailey then has nothing and then has to like overcome that error but like then again that's not really like a rags to riches type story. I think that's just like, oh, that's like an unfortunate event that happened in his life. Um, and I don't think I really don't think this is a story about an American dream. I just think it's it's kind of showing where America is stuck in like our post-war world. So it's kind of between like Pottersville to me kind of represents future in the movie and uh, Bedford Falls is what George Bailey is so like desperately holding on to like what it represents and like the nostalgia 
of Bedford Falls and keeping it local. Um, but what do you guys think? Uh, in my opinion, I think that I don't know really exactly know if it would be about the American dream. But I think there's a line early on in the film that hints towards what it's kind of trying to portray. And it's uh, before George is about to leave for college. He's about to, he's graduating school. No, his brother's graduating school. And he's talking to his dad. And uh, his dad kind of whispers to himself that it's deep in the race of men to want to own their own house, basically. I think a lot of the film is about a dignified living. And it's not about Potter. Like Potter's life, he's has more than he can ever spend, is what a lot of people say about him. But he is like, you know, he has no family, he has no friends, he only has sycophants who will like worship him for money. And so the when George is like at a in a bad place and thinking about suicide, the whole point of it is to show that it's not monetary success or it's not what you own that makes your life much better. It's how you serve people in your community and how you help people out. And he thought he'd never help anyone, but literally everyone had a house because of him and what he did. And so I think that's what the movie's kind of about, is that he helped other people have a dignified life and a dignified life himself. And it's not a bad thing to not be a massive financial success at all turns. You don't have to live this adventurous, crazy, amazing life. You can have a good, quiet, happy life. So ultimately, he fulfills his father's kind of vision for the good life um, in the end. I like that as like a thesis statement for like, what's the moral of this film? We're going to have my, my dad say it right before he croaks with a stroke. Yeah. And it's also like the idea of Potter is that he it's not just like renting property is a bad thing. It's that he wants to keep people at his will and he'll always have some sort of power over him. And that's the problem. But everyone else has some sort of level of independence because of George yeah. and because George isn't cruel like that. It's, it definitely fits in. Here's where it is does tie, I think, into a, a vision of the American dream. But it's bigger than that. It's not just, I mean, because these these questions of what is the good life are very old. Um but that sense of people should be small holders or in the old old world sense, freeholders. They should own their own fee simple property, farm their own little plot, have their own space on God's green earth that is theirs and viably. This rejection of the idea of a, a rentier class, the people who rent out land. So, of course, in, in an Irish context that's very old, dealing with these <laughs> English landlords, these potters, mm-hmm. classic English surname, uh, renting out land to the poor Irish and keeping them in, you know, serfdom, essentially. So it's kind of a rejection. It is that vision of like in, in, in American context that is very Jeffersonian, yeoman farmers. Uh, it's even uh, we had this discussion on Free Thoughts about Josh Hawley's vision of Epicurean liberalism, which is a rejection of the Sam Wainwright cosmopolitan vision of the good life and the affirmation of the small freeholders owning their own plot in small town virtues across America vision. So like that is a very American, you know, historical theme, but a, a broader, deeper philosophical concept. So in that sense, we, we do see that here. Uh, the other bit, though, I think where we do have some of that American dream being affirmed here is the immigration angle. So Frank Capra is a first-generation Italian immigrant. He comes over, he is dirt poor, um, f- scrabbles his way up through the Italian ghetto of Los Angeles. And to be Italian in America in the 1910s and 20s like he was, was to be... It, the, the, the contemporary corollary would be to be Mexican in America today, facing lots of prejudice, lots of nativism, uh, lots of, yeah, just oppression because of your ethnicity. And so people didn't like it. Like this is the time of the second Ku Klux Klan when he's coming of age who don't want these Southern um, Europeans and Eastern Europeans coming over and immigrating because they can't they they can't be fully American. They can't be fully integrated. And you know what? They're not even really white. In fact, if you look at political cartoons from the time, especially people from Southern Italy like Capra, Sicilians, they were or Naples were considered not white, like Northern Italian, Northern Italians. Okay. They're, they're okay. But Southern Italians. Oh no, no. I mean, because they, they intermarried with the Moors and when the, when the Muslims, it's, it's a whole complicated. There was a character as well. It was Italian martini, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he eventually gets his own home as well. He used to live in one of Potter's shacks and then he moves out eventually and has his own home. And there's a big speech about, they have the different things they give them as gifts. Yep. So, so in the Martini plays an important role in here. And I think what Capper's doing is he's, he is saying, and this kind of undergirds the entire story. He's saying, uh, how do we know that you can integrate, uh, white ethnics, Italians like Martini, who plays this really big role, which is odd because you, if you think about Bedford Falls, I don't know, let's say Ohio or Massachusetts, the Martini 
uh, figure is kind of odd. Like usually Italian immigrants come to New York City, to big cities first. So why does he insert an Italian character there? Well, he's saying, um, how do we know that Italians like myself, Frank Capra, the director of the movie, and Martini, the character in the film, how do we know they can integrate and become fully American? We know that because the Baileys did. Bailey is an Irish name, right? Um Throw some Irish Bailey's cream in your hot chocolate. Yeah, I know. It's like you don't get more Irish <laughs> yeah. than Bailey's Irish cream. Is that accurate, Meanie? You no don't idea. get more Irish than throwing Bailey's in your... Even in though your... I'm Irish, I've barely drank any Bailey's uh, ever. Oh, man. Do Darn. they drink it in Ireland? I'm... Some people do. It's kind of a Christmas thing, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Do you have eggnog? No. Oh, interesting. Anyway, back to Paul. <laughs> yeah, no, no, so, so you have the Baileys here, right? They represent in the, the, the biggest, the big wave of Irish immigration comes over in the 1830s and 40s. So by the 1940s, especially, but by, by the time of Capra has come, same pattern there. They weren't considered integratable. They're Catholic. They speak Gaelic. They don't, you know, like, um, they're not considered fully white in, in 19th century political cartoons. Um, but, they had integrated. They had become, you know, American. They've been Americanized, and they were considered fully white and yada yada. Um, and there's all these markers of that in here. I mean, like the Baileys are sending their boys to college. Uh, Harry's a member of an eating club, which is so. Before there were fraternities at colleges, there were dining clubs or eating clubs, and uh, they still exist at like Ivy League colleges. But Harry's a member of one. He's going to be a member of a, of a dining club. There's reference there. How do you know they're fully white? Well, they have black serv, serv, a serv, servant, right? And of course, part of being white in America means showing that your, your social stress is, right. is above African Americans. So Capra makes these decisions to show that the Baileys had become respectable pillars of the community. And now they could give an arm up to the next wave of immigrants, your martinis and the like. One weird thing about the story, though, is that, um, not only talk about American dream, it's rags to riches, but in this story, it's actually like riches to rags. Mm-hmm. His dad's house seems much better mm. than his, and he eventually moves into a worse house, and he has way less money. At one point, they talk. I was looking up how much money he earned a week. I tried to translate it in inflation because like a, it was one hundred and forty-five dollars a week, I think something like that. And then Potter's talking about him like, "Oh, and you have a kid, you only have ten dollars a week to save, and you have another kid, you have nothing left." So he wasn't even earning very much. And he comes home and complains about his house the entire time when he has that bad day. Definitely doesn't make like the DIY movement look very good. Like the, the, the horrors of trying to fix up that big old drafty mansion. Yeah. What, what's the thing on the stairs he keeps trying to, uh, oh, yeah, whatever that's what's called? That called? Oh, it's like part of the, um, rail, right? The banister. It's like, yeah, it's part yeah. of the banister that always falls off. Yeah. yeah. Well, I also thought, so like, Going back to what we were saying about homeownership, too, I think it's interesting that throughout the film, like a lot of it, a lot that we see is about either owning a house or fixing up a house or creating a neighborhood or Mm -hmm. slums. That is a common theme throughout the movie. Um, And I think it starts with the raggedy house and that's where they got engaged, right? I, or that's when they first it, went. He, she wished she yeah, where they fell in love. The house and broke it, had something wish. like that, and then he bought the house. Big romantic gesture, but um, uh, here we are. And, a bit presumptuous, yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> but so here we are with with this old rackety house, and he always makes comments coming back to it too. And then when he goes and to work and the savings and loan, he's one of those people that trusts that he's going to give out a loan that maybe someone can't afford now for their house or for their home, but will afford at some point. Um, so he's very trusting in a sense that's almost not not great. <laughs> well, he knows people personally. There's a point where I think it's Potter's talking about the taxi driver. I forget his name now, but yeah. he's saying, how will he ever pay this loan back? And he's like, well, he just had a bad day or a bad week and he'll pay it back eventually. And he always does. And like, I can vouch for his character. So he knows everyone in the town, so he can act like that. But <coughs> Potter doesn't. Like, Potter has no friends, no family, so he can't trust people the same way George does. Yeah, it is this kind of rejection of a... It's not a full-blown rejection of, of capitalism per se. Faceless capitalism, they don't yeah, like. Yeah, it's kind of a re- it's it's a it's a particular vision of a yeah. Again, it goes back to that smallholder, small town where you know everyone. You got for their character, and a rejection of big ca- in- capitalist institutions that are faceless and nameless. Of course, there's a there's a plus and a minus to this. Like I. You, I can't imagine if I were on the board of directors of a bank and my, the, the person has fiduciary responsibility for making sure that the bank stays solvent is like, yeah, I gave a loan to him because he's a friend and I'll vouch for him. And, uh, 
and and like ha, hire, has his literal uncle. I mean, it's like reverse nepotism because Nepos is nephew. Reverse nepotism. You have your uncle who is clearly incompetent. Uncle Billy should be nowhere. He should be barred from being within 100 feet. And he has the bird bank. in the bank as well. He's the bird and in the bank. And he has a squirrel in his house. He is like, squirrel, he's very yeah. <laughs> The bird in the bank is worth two in the book. So. <laughs> That's right. But this is – it's like a vision of, of – um, I'm not so convinced. Like, so obviously Potter's framed as the bad guy, but you think about what depersonalized institutions actually can do. So this vision of like the small town life where you know everyone and, and everyone gets along and pulls together at the savings and loan, that sounds all well and good. But imagine if you grew up in Bedford Falls and you weren't white. Or you weren't the right kind of immigrant who wanted to integrate. Or you were a woman trying to start her own business. Or you were um, black or you were gay or like small time life, that kind of dense network of I'll give you options. I'll lend to you. I'll let you go to college. If you are the – if you fit in – that sounds great as long as you're someone who can fit in. It's, it's very easy to forget when you watch it. Yeah. It's so glamour and glitzy. You're like, oh, it's so great. The 40s sound great. Then you but, realize, except for everyone else. But Potter, ironically, if he was not framed as like always being this cackling bad guy, that vision means we don't care if you're gay or you're black or you're white or you're Christian or Catholic or whatever. We'll lend to you if you're reliable. You know, like, like that actually can be freeing for the very people who would find Bedford Falls stultifying otherwise. Well, I also thought it was interesting because throughout the film we see uh, very little minority characters. So we see – well, we, we have fem- – there are females in the story, but they they don't really have a lot other than being like homemakers or in the alternate – and. George's alternate universe. She's a librarian who apparently makes nothing of her life when she doesn't have George Bailey. A movie from the 40s Which with is... shallow female characters? Who's what? the girl who fancies George at the beginning? The blonde girl. Oh, she... the blonde girl with the curly hair, right? Violet. She, go... yeah, Violet. she goes off to work in New York. That's as close as we get to female empowerment. <laughs> yeah, but his wife essentially like this literally the movie literally says his wife could not have a life without him because she comes like some like raggedy librarian and just is like waiting around for her prince charming which like is bs but besides the point the other thing i was just thinking i forgot about the part when there's a run on the bank which like none of us thankfully have experience but there was a run on the bank and he actually he had like three dollars left or whenever he was giving out yeah he had two dollars left eventually yeah um which was which was his honeymoon fund um he has two dollars left that he's giving out um to people and the last person he gave it to was a an old female um i'm blanking on her name right now but i also thought that was interesting that they did throw some female characters in there probably just as fillers because i mean most of the women portrayed in this movie are very ditzy and can't have a life without their husband. And well, there is a like, I mean, I think the representation of women, I mean, that that it really is so striking that final scene, like, and also the horror. Anyone who's worked for a library would be like, the horror, the worst thing you can imagine, life without a man means being a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I mean, the role of, of race in the film, while it's rel- it's kind of minor, it, it is there. Like you have I, – I counted three kind of black characters in the film. You the, fa- had, the absence of it says the a lot about a lot. it. But you have Annie who's the hired help who they casually sexually harass, swats her on the rear end. Um, you have a black couple on the town laughing at – George Bailey when he was kind of romance, this romantic vision to Violet. Um, so part of the nightlife scene, which is disapproved of in the film. And then tellingly, you have a black piano player in the alternate version of the Demon Potter's Bar. So mm. like this is part of that whole immigrant framing, but there's the good immigrant and the bad immigrant yep. that's going on. The good immigrant, you know, makes runs a bar, martinis runs a bar, but makes sure people don't drink too much. He's very responsible, playing traditional Italian music in the background. The bad version of the immigrant bar, Nick's bar, has a black piano player playing jazz. And that's one of the things that in the nineteen forties you know, white folk would have heard jazz playing and been like, oh, black people, jazz, bad. Do you remember how Nick town. describes the bar? No, how does he describe it? He starts talking and uh, Clarence starts talking, the guardian angel of George starts talking to him and eventually he just says, this is a bar for hard liquor to get people drunk fast and nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, it's also very telling of the time too, how they treat alcohol in this film. So like they're 
it's insinuated that no one should be drinking and that they're like very anti-alcohol, which like this isn't too far away from prohibition, but it's very frowned upon, like just like the quote you were just saying, it's very frowned upon. Um, and like because George is like stumbling drunk in his alternate universe um, and comes up um, across the pharmacist that he ended up um, saving his job. But since he was never born, the pharmacist was like a drunk and had gone to jail for 10 years because, because he ended up killing he ended that, up killing his son, yeah. killing his son with the medicine that George had found. Um, the incorrect medicine. But I think it's very interesting just because when we watch it, we're like, we might not pick up on those subtleties because alcohol is like a normal part of our lives. But back then it was like everyone agreed that alcohol was more of like promiscuous, so to speak. Or I'm going to be drink. It's only hard liquor. Yeah. No one ever drinks like a beer or something. It's always like a double bourbon is what he orders in the bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true. I think the most important question that we could ask ourselves, though, about It's a Wonderful Life is... Is it even a Christmas movie? And I don't think so. In this essay, I will. Um, <laughs> so the, the movie is two hours and 15 minutes long. If you watch it on TV, it'll take you half the day with commercials around that time of year. And the, only the last 57 minutes are actually devoted to occurring during, I believe it's Christmas Eve, and a, a, a very short portion at the beginning when we see a lot of these through flashbacks once the, the angel has visited George Bailey. But I, the, I think it, it begs the question, how do we def, define a Christmas movie? Does it need to be set during Christmas? Because if so, as a lot of people have compared online, Die Hard, also a Christmas movie. But I would argue, and a lot of other people have said so as well, Christmas is more of a theme hit upon in Die Hard than in It's a Wonderful Life. Now, I don't think that it's a bad movie, and I don't think that there are not values that could align during Christmas time. But you could theoretically take this movie and put it during Thanksgiving, and the gathering of the the family at the end could be, you know a group uh, a, a thanksgiving dinner that everyone gathers to put together and 99% of the themes could make sense and still have a lot of thematic impact so i you know just to play contrarian a little bit i don't consider it a christmas film okay well i'm not going to lay out my thesis here but it if we're not delineating it as a holiday film or a Christmas movie, mind you, we did say we, these were feel-good classics, which fair, which fair. most I can't most, argue with that. Most holiday movies, if they're not comedy, they're still like some type of feel-good, happy at the end, and everyone gets gifts or everyone drinking hot chocolate Krampus or Bailey's. Is great, but. Uh, okay, Krampus is a different is a different <laughs> category, but I don't think you can delineate it in any other way than saying it's a holiday movie. Would you watch It's a Wonderful Life in the middle of July? I mean, whether I would watch it is something completely different, but I'm just... And uh, Paul, you look like you were about to say something. Well, Come in, quick, save me here. Just going to make a quick <laughs> note, which was that this movie was originally not intended to be released at Christmas time. They ended up... That doesn't help his thesis. Yeah, it doesn't help. It actually kind of helps Natalie, I suppose, but maybe... <laughs> no, maybe, I don't know who helps. Because I don't know the about original that. Intent, they, they were going to release a different picture at Christmas time. This was going to come out like midsummer and they had to delay it they decided to try to release it at christmas but they released it late in most locations it came out in january of 1948 so but um, wasn't it like a flop it did it okay did relic- but yeah. the problem was it, it it was a very expensive film mm-hmm. to make so it underperformed like expectations but it was like the sixth highest grossing film of the year but it, but it, it's typically on you know abc tbs well, all of our our christmas 12 days of christmas here's, countdown here's right? what i'll say it 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 has become a christmas film due to cultural events surrounding the movie the fact that the copyright on the actual film not the story but the the film lapsed and so a lot of people were able to buy up their rights and uh I was going to say stream it, but uh, <laughs> to broadcast it um, very frequently, very cheaply during – I believe it was like the 1970s was when that started. Um, so the film in a vacuum as a discrete piece of media 
is what I say. I would not call it a Christmas movie. I think that after all of the events and it becoming, you know, sort of a ritual, a, a tradition that people do, much in the same way, uh, you know, a Christmas story is played 24 hours on TBS every single every single year. Uh, I, I see why we consider it now to be a Christmas movie. But until learning about that, I was always confused as to once I saw the movie because I I had like seen scenes of it or like knew about it for many years but when I actually sat down I think as like a late teen and actually watched the whole thing I like knocked out a whole afternoon by watching it on TV during Christmas and one year. And you seem like you deeply regretted it. <laughs> no I enjoyed the movie like it is it is a great movie I'm not not hating on Frank Capra's uh, work it is it is a wonderful life after all um, <laughs> and Jimmy just, Stewart is oh so good looking. Oh yeah oh. <laughs> Mr. Potter. Wait, Jimmy Stewart, how did you come into the studio? It's amazing. <laughs> the ghost of Jimmy Stewart, everyone. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> That's pretty good. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you but, tell him. So one of, <laughs> one of the things I was also – one of the reasons it makes me think of Christmas in particular – is the because of the angel um Clarence so a lot of a lot of holiday movies typically have angels or ghosts or some type of i mean if we want to get all hallmarky what's that uh, the spirit of christmas <laughs> spirit of now christmas. that is a christmas <laughs> movie and we'll get to that um but so i think that with the existence of the angel that makes it a stronger case to be a holiday film. The angels but, are but throughout the Bible, but though. They also, weren't just... They didn't just herald yeah, the birth but of Jesus. It, but doesn't it have, like, a, a little bit of an essence? Same, like, Christmas Carol obviously has all the ghosts that come in it, and we'll talk about that later. But I think that kind of ties in the holiday season a bit more. Though, as Paul said earlier, that was only, like, a quarter of the movie, right? That wasn't actually... Angels weren't a bigger part of the movie. Though I'm not I'm not seceding to you Angel right now. Angel second so. class as well. <laughs> <laughs> true. True. Yeah. All right. Well, you tell us what you think. Make sure to to send us a message or tweet at us and tell us: Do you think it's a wonderful life? Is a Christmas or holiday movie? I'm very curious to to know what the listeners think. Well, regardless what what we think or they think, it's still going to be on. You know, twenty four seven every night leading up to Christmas this year. So you the win <laughs> Yes. <laughs> All right, so the the next the next movie we wanted to cover was a Christmas Carol. Uh, excuse me, uh, Natalie. I would just like to clarify we we are discussing the Muppets Christmas Carol because uh, there's it, only been thirty renditions of a Christmas Carol. Yeah, but none of them have involved Henson esque puppets, and everybody loves puppets. Yeah, it makes the story ten times better. It's true. When when you've got Gonzo and Rizzo the Rat narrating, acting as a Greek chorus for Dickens' classic, I think it really elevates it to another level. Does everybody – so I, I have this theory that puppets – there's a, a, a chronological delay here. It's true. Puppets, we should, Muppets. We should, Muppets we should note Muppets. it is Muppets. <laughs> that, but that the phenomenon of puppets, whether Muppets or not um, – they will. They might look to future generations like clowns do to us. So clowns become super popular in the 1940s and 50s, early television. Like they're desperate to get some content on TV. So they're like, let's take clowns from the circus and have all these clown. Like clowns will do variety shows for kids. But, but the problem and that lasted. That went pretty well for young boomers who finally remember like these clown shows they literally grew up with. But then people started – they were weirded out by clowns eventually. We got clown saturation and we're in a post-clown moment. Like <laughs> clown – I know. It's, but like clowns now are creepy. They're scary. There's like a little literal horror movie. I forget the name of it where a guy puts on like a clown nose and it transforms him into an evil like serial killing clown. So Not like, quite Krampus. Not quite Krampus. Or it. It is a clown. Oh, yeah. Right? It, is a clown. it is a clown. Yeah. Like you can't have a non-ironic clown as like – a good wholesome like I, I it sounds bizarre but imagine if like all the late night shows were hosted by clowns that's how big of a deal they were in the 50s but but maybe puppets and muppets 
fill that same kind of niche. They were very popular in the late 70s, 80s, 90s. They've tailed off a bit recently, though maybe a bit of a revival, but will in 30 years. With CGI and animation sort of filling a void, I think now that it's especially cheaper and cheaper to produce, and that's the kind of like children's content that we want because it's sort of, it can be fantastical and everything. I wonder if that will sort of move on and take the the place that that Muppets and Puppets did. I I mean, I hope that we have a, like a creepy Muppet scare, (laughs) like how clown come back every few yeah, years yeah, and they're right. like a clown was stalking children <laughs> but it's kind of hard to be scary when they're two foot tall well that's what like, I, the that's why I'm hoping is it's like <laughs> you're seeing like a, a like a gonzo the grouch muppet leapt out and scared a couple while walking down the <laughs> sidewalk in Cedar Rapids there'll be a horror movie 30 years from now where Jim Henson the the puppet you know, like it goes around and stabs people. The puppet master yeah. in right. theaters this Halloween. Yeah, right. I'm rolling my eyes at all of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Dr. Christmas back Carol. on topic, yeah. I, I think, Natalie, this is a good question. You seem tired of the – you mentioned 30 different renditions. Are you tired of Christmas Carol? I, I'm and not why? tired of it. I think – I mean, it's a classic. I am going to admit that I've actually never read the story. Um, 18 – mid-1800s, right? Like 18 – 50-something or 40-something? It's um, right after the poor laws of 1834. That's how oh, of course. Yes. I can give you the context. context. Yeah. So uh, Thomas Robert Malthusus was a economist and thinker, wrote an essay on po- principle of population, and he talked about how the growth of the human race is what he calls geometric, what we call exponential. So we grow in like two, then four, then eight, then 16, then 32. But he said food production or like the growth of food, food surplus, I guess you might call it. That was arithmetic. arithmetic. So he'd say grow by 10, then another 10. So go 10, 20, 30. And so he believed that no matter what, there'd always be too many people eventually. <laughs> and so whenever we had a surplus of new food, thanks to new production methods, any standard living that we had, any increase in standard living would eventually be done in because exponential growth of the human race would stop it and we'd all go back to subsistence level. It was called the iron law of wages. This sounds very bizarre. But anyway, going on, uh, in 1601, there was the poor laws of Elizabethan England and they talked a lot about how if someone is dying of starvation, well, the government should do something about it and help them survive. But in 1834, influenced by the theories of Robert Malthusus and the Iron Law of Wages and how there'd be too many people, uh, the British government decided to get rid of that and have the workhouses instead. And so they said, you know, we'll make workhouses so it's really unattractive to ever go on relief and so you'll have to work for it. And uh, Charles Dickens, who wrote A Christmas Carol, was very poor growing up and his father owed £40 for buying bread. And back then you went into the debtor's prison. That's why Scrooge is the bad guy because his family uh, everyone his, his mom his sister and his dad all went to prison while he worked eight to 13 hour shifts in a factory as a child so he for his entire life was always an advocate of helping out children he he actually tiny teeny probably comes from his experience with disabled children that he wanted to help out and reintegrate he was always arguing for more sanitation in factories and whatnot but he hated uh, Thomas Malthusus he thought his theories were ridiculous and that they just produced this really callous attitude towards the poor and originally uh, Christmas card was going to be a pamphlet on the welfare of children but then he decided eh, people will feel really bad about that because they'll just realize that they've been terrible people and they'll try and deny it so instead I'll make it into a novel mm. and that'll slowly convince people that's why it's characters like Tiny Tim and whatnot to make people feel very guilty about what they've done and the two uh, there's the two children with the ghosts which ghost is it? The ignorance and want. The two children. What ghost are they with again? Um, I'm. They might not show up in this version. The Muppets yeah. version. They probably don't show up. But the two. <laughs> the original version. They do. Yes. There's yeah. two children that show up. Ignorance and want. And ignorance and want are supposed to represent the problems of Victorian society. That there's people who need resources and there's people who actively ignore them which is the Victorian elites. So this is anti-Malthusian propaganda, yes. basically. Yes, it comes through in the Muppets version very well. So it doesn't quite, <laughs> it, it doesn't quite like, um, map onto our concerns perfectly, because, like, libertarians are also like anti- five minutes talking about it. <laughs> well, no, but, like, because we're not, we're, we're, we're anti-Malthusian too, but yes. we're not anti-Malthusian in, like, that doesn't lead us to the same conclusions as Dickens, in a sense. I mean, like... Scrooge, I mean, he's clearly the bad guy here and he's unfeeling and whatever, but like, we're not, um, uh, 
inherently opposed to the concept of money lending. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a he's a money you know he's a money lender, and but he's not just a money lender. He's also just terrible. Like he talks about um at one point he's talking about some child, and he's like, you should lend yourself to the surplus population, which is a term for people who should die off because yeah. there's too many of you. Yeah. So that kind of thing. He's just he's not just that he's money lender. But obviously, Dickens did not like money lenders because his. Yeah. But back then, if you uh took out a loan and didn't pay it back, you were considered like a criminal. In jail, yeah. Yeah. So prison. I can kind of see why you'd hate them so Yeah, much. right. But yeah. Dickens did believe in progress and that it would actually help people and that we weren't doomed to this really, yeah. I was called a Malthusian trap. He didn't think that. Yeah. That's what kind of what Christmas Carol is about. But it's also supposed to be about humanizing the poor because a lot of time it was kind of viewed as if you're poor, it's it's your own fault really, even though you're born into Victorian England with no opportunity but that's why they have the whole scene at the end with the family having a small yeah. meager feast but like loving each other a lot it's to humanize them and to make Victorian England feel terrible about what they've done one of his early fans was uh, Karl Marx actually Marx yes. wrote the approvingly of, of A Christmas Carol right mm-hmm. um, I can't remember exactly what he praised it for though the, there was a bit of a critique where he's like he agrees like he does such a great job showing how basically terrible and evil industrial capitalists are and you know, showing the plight of, of the poor uh, working classes. But he doesn't offer a systemic like alternative, right? Like, so Dickens doesn't have it then. Well, because of this, you know, the, the, the Bob Cratchits of the world should, you know, join together, rise pro- up, rise and, up and overthrow. beat Scrooge with, you know, they grab tiny Tim's canes and right, attack right, him right. in his home or something like that. Right. So, he, say he doesn't offer this. Doesn't that offer was one of the solution. sequels I didn't watch. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Muppet Christmas Carol 2. The Revenge <laughs> of Tony Sam. Strike Back. <laughs> I would watch that film. Yes, I would. <laughs> so this goes to, I, I think, a larger question is uh, it also kind of you know humanizes Scrooge. I mean, in a weird way by the end where he he sort of tries to redeem himself he goes out and he gets the the largest uh, turkey uh, hanging in the window and and provides it to this family and everything like that um so do you think dickens would does he see michael Caine's scrooge as as redeemable or is he do you think he is he is trying to portray him as you know inherently bad because of his choices that he's made i think the whole point is that once you actually Scrooge is isolated. He never sees other people, doesn't pay attention to people. But once he's shown what is happening, he realizes the error in his way is pretty fast. And so it's all just about experiencing other people, I think. In one night, he changes his mind. That's all it takes. Well, a lot of people never actually looked at the underbelly of Victorian society. (laughs) When Karl Marx uh, lived in England, he actually never visited a factory. So that kind of stuff happens. That you just, you live in your own world, you can stay there, and it's quite easy to. So, so yeah, I mean, what, what, we have we have this critique of um we have a critique of unthinking unfeeling like uh uh, uh people with money of capitalists right but like they can be humanized and redeemed by the end um like if you if you had to tweak the story to make it more classically liberal because at the time you have classical liberals this is 1840s isn't this the corn law agitation where the economist the magazine is founded and like where we root a lot of transatlantic thomas malthusus also supported the corn laws yes (laughs) so like in a sense we should be we are on the side of dickens in the classically liberal 1830s 1840s sense right Mm -hmm. like but how would we tweak the story how would if you had to change the story to make it more even more classically liberal how would you do that more muppets more Muppets. Yeah, that's the solution, solution no everything. Humans. Well, that's not true. you got to have one human because the contrast is what makes it really good. <laughs> yeah. And what I think, just side note, Michael Caine, when he accepted this part, said, I will play this as if I am in the royal Shakespeare yeah, production. Yeah, yeah. puts a lot of effort into it. There's never a wink or a nod to the audience that like he's doing it in a movie or, or in a Muppets yeah. production. He plays it straight, and I think that's why I really like it. But, you know, you got to have one human in there. Getting back to Paul's classically liberal question, how would we how would we change or alter this film? I mean, this film is a lot of it's about charity, too, um, especially since um, I I don't know if this happened in the Muppets version. But one of the versions I watched from like when I was little was when the um, beggars came to the door. Are, I think this is in one of the original versions. Beggars came to the door asking for food, asking for donations and um I think they asked for like meat and drink or something like that. And Scrooge just supply, uh, Scrooge replies, Oh, are there no prisons that are open now? Which like 
we, it's something we referred to earlier, but I think charity is a large part of this story. Um, and Scrooge, obviously, in the beginning, before he's, you know, visited by ghosts and all that good jazz, was under the impression that it was their fault that they were begging for food, that he didn't owe them anything. Not necessarily that he has a, he thinks he owes them something at the end, but I think there's a larger story about charity here that we could make more classically liberal than its depiction. Uh, it is in the movie because Bunsen Honeydew is the charity collector in this movie. <laughs> oh. So he comes to the door. Just, yes. just to clarify. I don't know how I'd make it more classically liberal, but the charity angle can be good. Or maybe that they, <laughs> they end up just not needing Scrooge by the end. That would ruin the story, though. But mm. hopefully they'd find a way to work without someone who's so terrible like Scrooge. Uh, maybe if you insert a character. Yeah, you insert someone who is a Scrooge Type. In other words, he fill, he's the, the mirror image. There's like Scrooge, rep- his foil is a money lender who is more generous, who is like, so you have some sort of foil there, um, showing that like, I mean, in a sense, he acts as his own. I mean, there's Scrooge before the visitation and Scrooge after. Um, so you kind of already have that in a sense. Maybe you could have Scrooge goes out of business because he has terrible business practices. Maybe that could be something. <laughs> the free you know, market like, comes uh, down on Scrooge. Well, there was like yeah. a whole thing. There was a humane factory owners that gave people houses and gave them higher wages and didn't make them work to right. death and tried to educate them and whatnot. And they tended to do better off than the people who yeah. wouldn't put coal on the fire. That's actually a through line between both of these movies in a sense. So you can see... It's a Wonderful Life is when it criticizes Potter and Potterville and, and the, you know, Rontier class. It's actually also a cri- cri- criticism. And Capra was a New Dealer. Um, a lot of his films, well, him personally versus, but his films promoted the New Deal in the 30s and 40s. And it was a critique of corporate welfare. Mm-hmm. So you had these old, you know, company towns where, you know, Milton Hershey would build a town full of, of apartments and a hospital and schools and company stores. And everyone in the town would live in Hershey, Pennsylvania, in the company town. Ford did the same thing. The um, first time they actually talk about Potter in It's a Wonderful Life, they say, is he a king? Yeah. And his carriage. So Potter is not just a rich guy. He's a rich guy who runs a company town. We call this co- the corporate welfare before the state welfare system is enacted during the New Deal. And um, but like that's a through line there is that you in this was once upon a time in the late 19th century, that was seen as the future of how to take care of 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 the poor, of the indigent, et cetera, was through these kind of corporate welfare systems. People like uh, redeem Scrooge having, you know, uh, less a money lender, I suppose, more like the factory owner would have a, have the factory and they provide education for the children and housing for the workers. Um, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, it does, they do outperform. I think you're right. Like Ford, Ford used to be praised by progressives because he paid the highest industrial wage in the entire country. Um, He's also deeply anti-Semitic. So you, know, you win some, you lose some. But like that was once seen as like if you were a, a progressive, forward-thinking person, you wanted these kinds of people to provide welfare. Now, it had downsides and I think you can – You're read, dominated by your company. And you're you dominated by your company. There's no freedom in there. Yeah. The Dickens answer to all this was he – Constantly was all about hygiene and education. Mm. That was normally thing. He was always very afraid of – he's always very afraid of children – uh, losing faith in God because of their situation being so terrible. Yeah. So you always was about the education. But the hygiene makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because apparently it was. And like in the book, it is just filthy. Like everything's just terrible. Yeah, this is about the same time period where there, there's push for the first municipal like sewer systems and water systems. Philadelphia, famously, or Philadelphia and Natalie, right? Like Go Birds. The waterworks, you know, that was 1880s, 70s, I think. But so at this time, you have these cities that we recognize are like modern, filled with millions of people, and they're still throwing their sewer stuff into the street. So yeah, people, it was a problem. It was a problem, hygiene. That's the way to put it. <laughs> That's right. So, so what, like, we've been talking a lot about. Muppets. We talk a lot about the Christmas Carol and Dickens. Like, what do you think adding Muppets in really adds to it for you, Landry? Uh, well, it's just adorable. First of all, <laughs> anytime you've got humans interacting with with Muppets and taking it seriously, I'm just automatically more enraptured. But uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what it is about Muppets as opposed to others. I really just like this version the best because 
whenever you get the Muppets together, you're going to get big names, too. You've got all the Muppets, all their Muppeteers, and then you get Michael Caine in there. It's, I mean, the only thing that would make it better is if it was like, you know, Muppets Take Manhattan or something like that, where it's like we've got cameos the whole time coming in left and right. Um, you want like Justin Bieber to pop in and sing with the Muppets or something? That, I, <laughs> take my money right here. <laughs> they got Tim Curry from Muppet Treasure Island. I want to see That's- him in a Muppet. That's my favorite Muppet movie. Because it's the best one. Yeah. Um, so I it's I mean, really it was just an excuse for you know, we wanted to talk about a Christmas Carol because it's a classic and it I think is a story that you know we can learn a lot from. I think everybody can learn from a visit from uh Jacob and, and Robert Marley, as Statler and Waldorf are are, you know, known as when they visit. So I really just wanted an excuse to talk about Muppets. And basically I lost because I said my favorite version was Mickey's Christmas Carol, but Ooh. yeah. We don't have the, the money to talk about that. No. So. <laughs> Disney will come they will come for us. please don't sue us jim hansen (laughs) no we're good but i think we could probably expect at least two or three more editions of christmas carol within the next 10 years i think the latest one came out they did jim carrey yeah the one yeah jim carrey came out what was that gosh three or four years ago i don't know um it's it's like the grinch they keep coming out with new versions of the grinch time is a flat circle (laughs) i you know i'm gonna like put on my libertarian hat for a second and be like because this came up with it's wonderful life too our copyright system is too restrictive. So both of these stories, the reason why we, the re, the real reason why we get so many Christmas Carol adaptations is because you can do it for free. The source material is in the public domain that encourages creativity. I mean, like you can imagine if the family of Dickens still controlled the rights, the Christmas Carol, would they have been like, Hmm, we want to take a real flyer on letting people put puppets in this <laughs> hallowed piece of the literary canon. No, the odds are they would have rejected that kind of mm-hmm. but when you allow that into the public domain, it creates it encourages innovation, ingenuity. It's a wonderful life. It it was underperformed the box office, dropped off the map, no one thought about it for the next 30 years. And then because the rights lapsed temporarily, this new the Turner Broadcasting System, which was I mean, today everyone's like, oh, TBS, know what that is. But back then, no one knows what TBS is. It's just struggling new nascent cable companies like we're desperate for content that's free that we can play on a loop from Thanksgiving to Christmas. Jimmy Stewart. Perfect. Jimmy Stewart. Right? <laughs> like, they're vaguely famous people in here and no one's enforcing the rights because there's, there's no profit to be had. But again, copyright law is way too strict. That's a libertarian hill I'll die on. That we do need property rights. I think intellectual property is good, but it's gone too far. And part of this is because of Disney. Every time the copyright term starts to, it's about the lapse. It gets close to when Mickey when becomes Mickey would in go public, to public domain. domain. They extend it a little bit farther, and that's had that's discouraged cultural innovation in America over the last half century or so. Now it's a wonderful Muppet life. That might be a Christmas movie. Uh, I, yeah. would, I, I would, you know, I would start. be like, <laughs> yeah, we, we should contact the right people Clarence, for that. Though. How about Elmo? It would Clarence. be Elmo. Yeah. I was going to say animal, but El- uh, it would be Elmo, I think. Moving on to our our very serious movie, Jingle All the Way, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, this is a more, you know, comedy, low key. Maybe not one. Highbrow known. drama. <laughs> That's what this is right here. It's like Christmas movie. Um, He's not a tumor. <laughs> All right. Not, not this Schwarzenegger movie, but I just had to All say right. it. At least we got one Schwarzenegger impression out here. So this is essentially just a story about how Christmas is about material things, right? We have Arnold Schwarzenegger going after Turbo Man, which is uh, the the... The must-have toy. The Tickle Me Elmo or the Cabbage Patch Child of, yeah. of hey, this season. Hey, don't knock down on Cabbage Patch. I'm not. I have a bunch of those. Okay. Um, so anyway, Turbo Man is like the end-all, be-all to Christmas. Your kid is going to be miserable and hate you forever if you don't get it. Um, and I think he – like. He's electronic too, right? He makes noises. Oh, and yeah. Like, he's, he's like, he is an action figure. It doesn't look that good. That's one weird thing about the film. It doesn't actually look that. Yeah. Well, so we're gonna turn we're gonna turn to Paul Meany here because this is the first time he's watched this film. Never heard of it. Um, he had never heard of it until a few days ago. First impressions, Just, Paul. I was speechless the entire time. 
Uh, it went from people laughing at poor old Arnie in a shop to him fighting Santa ninjas. And there was a boomerang. There was a bomb scare. Yes, there is a postal worker who threatens uh, threatens a radio station with a bomb. That, that wouldn't play so well in the post nine. No, it would not. It would not. Did, also, uh, uh, Sinbad's character originally supposed to be Joe Pesci. Little known fact. <laughs> Well, my personal favorite scene from the movie was actually when Arnold Schwarzenegger goes to steal the toy from his neighbor's house and he almost sets the neighbor's house on fire um, because, like, I don't know, the Christmas tree fell into something, whatever. It's like uh, a, he, what's, the, what's the animal that comes in? It's like a deer or something? Oh, yeah, yeah. So he goes outside. Reindeer, I think. He goes outside yeah. and starts drinking with the reindeer. <laughs> that was, I mean... There are so many just classic scenes in this movie. Any of the scenes but, with Phil Hartman because he is a gem and he can he can any line read from him is great. <laughs> so I guess I mean I don't have children, but there's only one person at this table who does. Paul, would you do this for George? Do, do what for George? Just you run through this. <laughs> go um, through this ordeal. Uh, I, I would I would have said. <laughs> unequivocally no before I had a child. And then you have a child and, and I mean, George is obsessed with Hot Wheels. If I did not give him some Hot Wheels set for Christmas, and thankfully it's not as specific as I want Turbo Man, but I like, I start to understand that. I still don't think I would, but I get the temptation to like, that's anything else and the kid's not going to be happy on Christmas and you want to make your kid happy on Christmas. And of course, in our old situation, there's, you know, strife at home and he thinks that, um, Buying this thing will kind of fix everything, repair his relationship with his son, with um, his they're, – they're, they're still married, right? Yeah, yeah but he's wife. like worried but, that she's but he's, cheating on him with Phil Hartman. Hartman yes, yeah. he's worried that Phil Hartman is going to steal his wife out – out, you know, from his arm. Uh, he also is, I believe, considered to be like a workaholic. Yeah. Um, mattress salesman. And so, yes, he's a mattress salesman. <laughs> and uh, and so it, it, you know, to me, it sort of raises the question. It, it's a question about capitalism. Like, has it gone too far? Like, is is he pushed to work too hard? Hasn't gone so far that, enough. They don't have enough Turbo Man. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That was going to be what I was sort of talking about. It was like, and it raises these there's questions about like, are, there's a scarcity of Turbo Men well, out. Um, Online ordering. That'd make it all better. <laughs> like the shops where they're just fighting each other? No way. More yeah, capitalism it, is the solution to the shortage of Turbo Man. It leads to innovation. Absolutely. <laughs> that's the only thing I took from this film that was so bizarre. Okay, that's, that was going to so be... So I'm done now. All right, everyone. That's our show. Thanks so Paul much. Paul put in everything he's got. <laughs> well, well there, there's, that, there's that bit. I mean, when Common Sense Media, which is one of those like Christian film rating websites, um, they, they gave it a low rating, one and a half stars or something, because they said it was about consumer, it was about consumerism. Mm. But it's actually supposed to be, I mean, it's one of those films where there's an intended purpose and then there's the way people actually watch it. The intended purpose is supposed to be a critique of mindless consumerism. Like, he shouldn't work so much. He shouldn't think that buying a thing will, will fix his family and his relationship with his son. Like, and he realizes that at the end, I should value my family more and work less and not be a mindless consumer. But there's the intended purpose and there's the way people actually watch it, which is like that's all, that's kind of tacked on at the end. The reason why people watch it is like, oh, look how funny it is that he's going after this doll, in which case you can kind of see it as an affirmation of consumerism in a sense. So there's that. I don't know. You want to have your consumers cake and eat it too. But or... not not all these scenes are like totally unrealistic, though. So like him fighting in the store for the last one, or like pushing people out of the way when the store door opens. Like that kind of stuff happens all the time. Like, have you been to the King of Prussia Mall on Black Friday? Like, it to... is a do yeah, or die type situation. I'm about to have my first Black Friday. Not oh. not a thing at home back in Ireland. So this is my first time. Oh, this is exciting. You you fight someone, Paul, to the King of Prussia. You have to. You and actually, Black Friday actually starts like on Thursday now. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's not even everything. All that creep. It's like yeah. all the. It's like uh, elections or primaries. They just keep getting front loaded. <laughs> yeah. I thought Black Friday is not as uh, crazy as it used to be. You're right because of online. Because of yeah. online. Now it's Cyber Monday and Cyber Monday, which is much better. Do you think there is a Jingle All the Way Two starring Larry the Cable Guy? Oh, it, was, it was a straight to DVD yeah, film okay. oh. produced by WWE Media, <laughs> and it has a it has at least one professional wrestler in it. But I'm wondering if we get a you know Jingle All the Way Three. The rejingling or something. Yeah. <laughs> if it'll be about Cyber Monday and like to get the perfect toy for uh, 
you know, I mean, a, a Cyber child, Mon- a mom has to like break into an Amazon warehouse <laughs> in the middle of the night yeah, right. and like hijack servers and like drive around one of their little robots. Well, also like on Cyber Monday now, people wait in virtual lines to get like on the store sites. I don't know if you guys have ever done this. It's not very fun. But like you have to open your browser and it's like you're 320th in line. And it's like it sets you to a different homepage. And then when you have access to the site, because there's so many people trying to get on at one time, they don't want it to crash. Then they'll let you go on. To I'd the, rather the do that than stand in a real line, though. Because yeah, I, 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 like I don't like the people next to me. I'm like, it's I, I don't like the spirit of of Black Friday. Because I'm like, people and I, grabbing things sounds terrible. Uh, it's the worst. I would much rather be bored at my house on, you know, in front of my computer with a, a mug of hot chalky having a good time with my flannel on. Then, you know, be out at midnight on the day after Thanksgiving when I've just woken up from my tryptophan coma. (laughs) So I think this is one of the cases where, you know, as Paul mentioned, you know, innovation has allowed for us to to improve our lives (laughs) as as pessimistic as people can be. Though I still we still want more Arnold Schwarzenegger movies to keep pumping out. Oh, of course. Absolutely. It is funny, like, because the Terminator Dark Fate is just now coming out with Arnold, you know, kind of recasting his Terminator role. Just came out. Why does everyone say Uh, Arnold's name that way? Arnold. (laughs) We're on first name basis. Yeah. Arnie. Yeah. You mean to say governor, governor, instead, <laughs> governor of California? No. Um, so, but what's interesting about his his little career and uh, big career, I should say, yes, not a little career, day, pumped career, um, and this the role of this movie in it is that like so to get all like nerdy, film nerdy on you. There's this film critic called John Coelty. Um, I got this by way of the YouTuber uh, nerd writer, anybody nerd writer fans out there, but um, who has this theory about the life cycle of genre films and like quality is applying it to act to uh, Westerns and then nerd writers applying it to superheroes. But I think it also applies here to action films. So those who are fans of action movies know that the eighties was the like golden age of the action film and a certain kind of action hero. It was your Arnold's, your Sylvester Stallone, um, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, and they're all these like pumped, often steroid pumping, though they would, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, say they wouldn't. These, you know, pumped characters who are larger than life a lot of it, and if, if you're for those, uh, you know, kind of cultural critics who have some history background, it's a reaction to the like 70s and 60s and American failures at the time. Like we lost in Vietnam War, but you know what? We need to say it wasn't our fault. It was because of traitorous generals or lack of pencil will. Pencil pushers mo- always. Pencil, that's, that's Rambo. Rambo is we could have won if we'd been allowed to win, um, especially the later ones, the two and the other later, later sequels. Uh, even Arnold, like all those movies are this brash, like we're not in the Jimmy Carter malaise anymore. This is Reagan's America. Proud that we're strong and muscular and assertive. We can fight, you know, and just vague, ambiguous brown people and whatever, whatever overseas situation they're, they're set, set in, right? So it's kind of, yeah, it's like a late Cold War. Um, uh, 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 hyper-masculinity on display. So what's interesting is this movie, like what are they doing with this guy who's recognized king of that genre? This is 10 years later. It's the 90s. What's he doing in this kind of ludicrous role? Well, it's parody. And so the, in genre film, Qualty's point is that genre films, they reach a point of saturation that people kind of become tired of them. People become tired of that classic 80s action film. It started to feel trite, had all these tropes and it got boring and it seemed hollow and inauthentic by the nineties. Um, and so you start to parody it. And that's what this is. This film's a parody of the action film. Like he's fighting not to spread freedom or to win the Vietnam war or whatever. He's fighting to get a doll. And a he toy. dresses up as turbo man to do that. Dresses up as turbo man and fights Santa. Cheesy. It's over <laughs> Ninja Santas. Ninja yes. Santas. Sorry. Um, the... <laughs> and so it's it's a kind of it's a parody of the roles he would have played in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Of course, then after inequality cycle, eventually you get back to reaffirmation of myth. Mm-hmm. You get demythologization, which is films like you think like No Country for Old Men, yeah. which like 
that's an action film and it's kind of like, ooh, this is – More of like a noir than anything yeah. I would say. Yeah. yeah. And then you get to reaffirmation of myth in the superhero genre that's like Logan and the Dark Knight yeah. are a reaffirmation of myth. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. It's kind of a nostalgia for – if I wish this is a world where this could be true. Um, and we got – in a sense, we have Terminator Dark Fate as a reaffirmation of myth. We've gone long enough now that it's like we are nostalgic for a time when we all kind of – bought into Arnold as this like legit action hero. And we want to unironically imagine a time where that seemed like a, not a realistic world, but that seemed like a thing that we wanted as a society. So anyways, so this movie plays the parodic role in that. And I think that's, I think that's interesting. And I think I was reading something online. It's usually Arnold Schwarzenegger's most forgotten film. I was like, re- and I was like, well, <laughs> Who did why? they serve that? Yeah. It's definitely his most I, I was famous. Like, I know. I was like, I want to see the stats Jingle on this all one. all the way. <laughs> Kindergarten cop. That's it. <laughs> the top two right there. <laughs> anyway, I thought that I thought that was also funny just because, well, all, that and people forget Arnold's the main character, which I was like, Arnold's like the whole movie. So I don't know how you would forget Arnold is the main character, but whatever. Some people just don't agree with us. That's fine. So I think that's all we had for today. But in our in true holiday spirit, Landry has written us a song and he is going to perform it right now. (laughs) Uh, So you may be familiar. We had a discussion about uh, copyright law and public domain. So I had to uh, hunt for a a, a song that was in the public domain. Uh, And luckily for the holidays, there are plenty. So uh, I'll only... The song is a song sung in the round, so it takes a while to get through the whole thing if you sing all the lyrics in the order as they would appear. Uh, so I'm just going to sing the very last verse of The Twelve Days of Libmus. <laughs> On the twelfth day of Libmus, the state gave to me twelve students deading, eleven whistles blowing, ten laws regulating, nine candidates fighting, eight dods franking, seven agencies spying, six schools no choosing, bureaucracy, four endless wars, three vaping bans, two party system, and a want for liberty. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear us break down one of your favorites, Muppet-fied or not, you can follow us on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by Tess Terrible and me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.